Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Eve Yohalem, a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. And I'm Julie Sternberg. My books include Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we explore what it's like for an author to write in a whole multitude of genres. How do you make the shift, say, from writing children's books to, oh, I don't know, writing a memoir? I'm so excited about this episode. <laughs> I know. Well, it definitely hits home for you. Yes. Should I say a little bit about why? Yeah, <laughs> please. Let, let's not keep everyone in suspense. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I would say that for many, many, many years, I have tried to tell the story of several generations in my family as a children's book. And I have failed at it so many times. And so finally, after struggling with this for so long, I did start taking a memoir class, which I loved. It's the highlight of your week. Well, apart from our work on book dreams. Yes. It seems like the memoir class is the highlight of your week. (laughs) It is such a highlight. And I just love exploring writing in this different way. How about you? Do you ever have an interest in trying different genres? I do. There have been a lot of nonfiction ideas for kids and for adults that I've really wanted to try, especially when I was writing Cast Off because it was set in the 17th century. I really wanted to do some sort of nonfiction book about, you know, fun facts. Like, for example, did you know that back in olden times when sailors would get shipwrecked and have to resort to cannibalism, it was called Custom of the Sea? (laughs) You say the cannibalism part as if, like, of course I knew that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it happened, right? You would get shipwrecked and there might not be any animals or I don't know. Occasionally it would happen that people would have to resort to eating other people. Or things like, how did women handle menstruation before tampons and sanitary napkins? You know, what did they use? Like, these are all things that I spent a lot of time wondering about. Do you know? Do you know what they used? I'm fascinated. I do happen to know. I mean, it depends on what time period and where, but sometimes women would use sea sponges. Often women would just use rags. And remember, this is before underwear. So, you know, if you put a rag, well, this is getting... (laughs) (laughs) You can see I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. This is not where I thought this episode would go. (laughs) If listeners would like to know more about how women handled menstruation before the modern age, just you know, send us an email and we'll, we'll look into it for a future episode. (laughs) Anyway, for this episode, we talked with two phenomenal writers who have written in many genres, KJ Delantonia and Trisha Elam Walker. And we spoke first to Trisha. Trisha Elam Walker is an award-winning author, attorney, and educator. Her first novel, Breathing Room, was published in 2001. Her latest book, which is a picture book for young children called Nana Akua Goes to School, was just published in June. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, the Baltimore Sun, and Essence. Trisha's plays, because she's also written plays, uh, she's written Bold Moves and With Glittering Eyes, which were both produced in Boston in 2018 and 2019. And because that's not enough, Trisha is an assistant professor of creative writing at Howard University. 
We've started by asking Trisha how she made the transition from being a lawyer to being a writer. And here's what she said. Well, I actually think that I was always a writer and I was born to be a writer, but I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know any writers. You know, it seemed like a pie in the sky dream. And my dad was a judge. He was one of the first black judges in Boston. My uncle was a lawyer. I had a lot of lawyers around me. And I just thought, you know, after college, let me just go to law school, which I have now found that a lot of people do. You can't quite figure it out. Oh, really? <laughs> you're, you're looking at one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because I was an English major and I was writing, you know, stories forever, but I still didn't see a path to that actually being a career. I did practice law for about 16 years, but all the time I was kind of writing on the side. And even I was an administrative law judge for like my last 10 years of practice. Fascinating. And I would have on my computer screen, one screen would have my cases and one screen would have my stories and I go back and forth. Mm -hmm. One day I was in my 40s and I just thought, this is crazy. Why can't I just do what I love to do? So I went back and got my MFA. I did it part time. I had kids then, and, you know, I was married and stuff. It was only a two-year program, but it took me forever because I did it part-time. But in that program, my thesis became my novel. I met another novelist, and she had already had some work published, and she said, you know, let me show it to my agent. And it really was a really quick, wonderful event. And uh, she sold it, and we had an auction, and on and on and on. That's a dream experience. I mean, the fact that you pretty quickly got an agent and then your book went to auction, you were living the dream. Yeah. I know. I don't know if that would ever happen again, but it was pretty cool and pretty amazing. How did you end up writing in so many different genres? And could you start by telling us all the different genres that you have written in? I think part of it is that I'm 66 and I kind of feel like I, I just, I don't know how much time I have to do this stuff. So I better just try to do stuff I'm interested in. So I was um, talking to a cousin of mine who's an illustrator, children's book illustrator. She had some old kind of collages and she said, well, why don't you look at these and see if you can make a story from them? And I sort of got an attitude because I thought, well, I'm using the boss of the story. I don't want to have to form my story around like, but all that said, her collages were beautiful. And I thought, okay, this is a challenge. Let me try to do it. We got a lot of rejections. So we sort of put it aside. And then I had an event at Howard about publication. And there was a woman who had done all the jobs. She'd been an agent. She'd been an editor. She'd been a writer. And I just was like, let me just talk to this woman. Long story short, she became my agent. And it took a minute, but not that long before she was saying, Random House Wanted. I was like, Random House? You know, that is crazy. The story with that book, though, is because my cousin has won all these awards and is so famous in this realm, she has all these projects that take precedent. So that book is not coming out probably till maybe 2022 because that book wasn't going to come out for a while. They said, we're going to give you a separate book contract. And I was like, oh, because I didn't have another book. Right. <laughs> so I was thinking, okay, now what am I going to do? So I have to tell you, I'm a Buddhist. I was chanting one day. I was at a friend's house and he had these two African masks and somehow when I was chanting and looking at these masks, a story kind of came to me about a little girl who maybe had tribal scarring on her face and that she might be worried that people would stare at her or not understand it or be mean to her or laugh at her. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to try to write about that. 
When I started doing research, I found that probably it would not be her generation still doing that. So I decided, okay, it's going to be her grandmother. When we interviewed Trisha, the book hadn't come out yet, and so neither of us had read it. But I have now read Nana Akua Goes to School, and here comes the felling part. This (laughs) book is so, so wonderful. I'm just going to read aloud the line that made me fall in love with the book. Although Nana's feet didn't even reach the floor, she seems as tall as the giant playground slide. Maybe that's because she's filled to the brim with stories about growing up in West Africa, where people carve statues out of wood, trees drip with mangoes, and crayon-colored outdoor markets sell everything you can imagine. Oh my God, it's just beautiful. (laughs) Well, the language is so gorgeous, but also a grandmother who is filled to the brim with stories. I know. Of course, she's Zora's favorite person in the whole world. What I love too is that Zora loves her. She's her favorite person, but she feels a little embarrassed by her, right? That's kind of the tension in the first part of the book. And I love that acknowledgement. I love, too, that Trisha has had two different experiences writing children's books. She's both, you know, written the text and then someone has illustrated it, which is this book. And she said that her cousin had already created illustrations that she then used as inspiration for the story, which is a different way of going about it and kind of fascinating. Right. It is very unusual. Yeah. So we continued our conversation with Trisha by asking how she came to write her first play, Bold Moves. And then we got into her nonfiction writing and her teaching. I love plays. And so I I took a playwriting class and it was write six plays in six weeks. That was the name of the class. Wow. <laughs> okay, here we go. I'm going to write And did plays. you? I mean, I the spoiler. Lie. That's incredible. That is incredible. That's, That's incredible. absolutely incredible. All short, of course. They were 10-minute plays. But still, a year after that, I was at an event on Martha's Vineyard during the summer, and this gentleman spoke and said, we are looking for short plays. No. <laughs> to produce. <laughs> Five of them. And it was a a community theater in Boston. I went right up to him, of course, afterwards. And I said, listen, I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but I have these plays that I've written. Can you just take a look? And he loved them. And you've written a fair amount of nonfiction as well. Yeah, I've done a lot of sort of essays, personal essays. I just did one for, I integrated a school in Boston when I was 10. And they asked me to write something about that experience. A lot of times it's experiences that have been um, troubling, either for me or my children or whatever. Oftentimes race things come up. I mean, I'm really thinking now, what do I want to write about this whole time we're going through? I feel like writing for me is part of who I am. And Mm -hmm. um, there are different ways to express it. And I want to try to do that if I can. So you don't just write, you teach writing. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your teaching. Well, it's interesting. I really didn't set out to teach writing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought when I wrote my novel that Oprah would call me, because that was back (laughs) in the day, you know, when she was doing her big book club thing. And it would just be an instant bestseller. And then I would just be rich and famous in writing. Mm -hmm. My life would just be a writer writing. Yeah. I think we've all had some version of that dream. And most of us have also had some version of that reality. (laughs) 
So I really had to think about, okay, well, what do I do? How do I do? I mean, I had uh, during that year, I said to my children, you know, I'm going to stop practicing law. I'm going to finish this book. You know, things are going to be a little different for us financially, but we're going to be okay. And I remember my oldest son, who maybe was, I don't know, 10 then, said, are we going to be homeless? (laughs) And I said, you know, I hope not. I don't think so. I'm going to do my best. But I kept thinking about that. Like, okay, I really need to figure out what am I going to Because I didn't have a plan. And so I started thinking about teaching. Where could I teach? Can you tell us a bit about your philosophy of teaching creative writing and how you help cultivate the work of emerging writers? That's a wonderful question. I think that it's hard to teach writing. Yeah. I think that I can um, give them examples of good writing. So I try to do that. Lots of examples of great short stories, longer pieces, I like letting them write about what they want. There's really no rules. If the grammar is not great, it's okay. I don't pay a whole lot of attention to that. If they want to use cuss words, I don't pay attention to that. So that sort of gives them freedom. And they've told me that. And I've been really surprised sometimes with people who I didn't, you know, that's what I think were going to show me some of the work that they ended up showing me. And then some of my students have gone on to MFA programs. I have one former student who her play just got reviewed by the New Yorker. I was like, oh my God. Wow. Hey. That's wow. Astonishing. Some of yeah. them. I'm curious, do you find yourself exploring the same themes in different genres? Do you find yourself coming back and back and back? Uh, or, or are there particular themes that have interest you, interested you in your writing? Wow. Hmm. Race is absolutely there just because as an African-American person, race almost comes up every day, even before all this stuff that's going just does, especially if you're moving in a world where, you know, oftentimes you're the only one. Yeah. Also, I'm very interested in relationships, how they form, how they fall apart, how maybe sometimes they can be, be repaired after they fall apart, maybe not. I'm very interested in young people. In my head, I'm still 16, even though I'm not. I also like to deal with hard topics. They are not always necessarily what the editor or my agent even wants me to write about, but I still do want to write a book for children about death. I've thought about writing about a child who's homeless or a child of divorce. I don't know. Those things interest me um, just because they're real and there are children going through these things. My mother loved children's books. She felt like they could explain the world. I remember my mother, uh, she had a favorite rocking chair and she'd sit with her children's books and we, her children, we would try to talk to her and she, it was almost like she couldn't hear her. She didn't have on <laughs> headphones or anything. And so we would always tease her and say, you know, this house could burn down with us in it. And you would just stay there reading. But that was, it was a joy, brought her so much pleasure. And she was a children's librarian and she headed up the Boston Public Schools Library programs. And one of the things that was important to her was to make sure there were diverse books for all children. And that was a long time ago. So I feel like that's part of my mission too. I want my book to be for everybody, even though it has African-American characters and the grandmother from Ghana. It's a book for everybody. And Mm -hmm. the one thing that stands out to me is there's a book called Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters. Do you know that book by John Pepto? Oh, my gosh. That book is so beautiful. He's an illustrator and he also wrote it. The illustrations are stunning and it won a lot of awards. 
And when my children were little, I volunteered at the book fair, one of at all of their schools, really. And I took on my mother's role of making sure there were, you know, lots of diverse yeah. books. So one day I'm in this book fair in the, you know, volunteering, selling the books, et cetera, at the school. And a white mother and her daughter came in and the little girl's eyes were just immediately drawn to that book. Mm-hmm. She was like, oh, mommy, I want this book. And her mother snatched the book away and said, that's not for you. Oh, God. I could cry now because at that time, that hurt so much. I didn't, I didn't say anything because I didn't know what to say. I was so stunned. But I think about that often because I think about how that was a moment. That was such a teachable moment when she could have, even if she didn't buy the book, let her daughter look at the book because this whole idea of not, that's not for you. Yeah. That's only for them. And that's one of the reasons we we have the crisis we have now. When I was little, I didn't have Black children's books, but I was able to empathize and put myself in those situations. And those stories still, you know, mean something to me today. And that is how I learned about the world. So we got to do better with that. I was going to say that the defeat's one of the most meaningful purposes of reading, which is empathy and learning, you know, about cultures and realizing our similarities, no matter differences and how we might look and all of that. It's just. Yeah, absolutely. It's just heartbreaking, right? When Mm. people tell other people that a book is not for them, it's infuriating, it's heartbreaking, and it's such a loss for everyone involved. And yeah, it just makes me so upset. And it reminds me, in episode eight, when we interviewed Anne Boyd Rue about Little Women, do you remember, Julie, we had a discussion about how initially Little Women was this book that everyone loved, adults, children, boys, girls, and that over time, this idea, this insidious idea grew that Little Women was a book for girls. And that boys couldn't read it. And what a terrible loss. And as you said in our interview with Trisha, what a terrible loss of of an opportunity to learn empathy. We also interviewed another writer who has written in many genres, K.J. Delantonia. And K.J. is the author of the viral New York Times essay, Why I Didn't Answer Your Email. She's also the former editor of the Times Motherload blog, the author of the book, How to Be a Happier Parent, and a co-host of the Hashtag AmWriting podcast. Can I just say really quickly that I love that podcast. <laughs> well, this is how we found out about KJ, because yes, you, exactly. you've been listening to the podcast forever. And then through you, I started listening to the podcast. It's terrific. Yeah, it's really, it, it is aimed at writers, but it's a wonderful way to listen to folks who are going through similar experiences if you are a writer and think about it. I thought it was interesting that like Trisha, KJ told us she felt like she was always meant to write novels. Um, She started out as a freelance journalist and made her way to the New York Times for several years before turning her attention to fiction. And here's how she evolved to become a novelist, beginning with her experience as an editor at the New York Times. So when I was there, I both wrote and edited everything that anyone saw on that column in the Times for the entire time. And it was awesome. It was amazing amazing job. Truly a dream that I would wake up every day and whatever I had that I felt parents needed to hear, I could write it in the New York Times. Uh, that was that was beyond my craziest dreams, really. And I would frequently be the piece in the Times that was covering something like a new effort to provide mandatory parent leave for people from senators or a controversy around whether or not 
people were paying their nanny taxes. So I had the opportunity to do a lot of really interesting journalism there, but also the opportunity to write my own essays, which were edited by some really great editors, and then the opportunity to become one of those editors. So are there things that you prefer about writing books as opposed to shorter pieces? I like having more time to think about it. I mean, in particular at the times, I was on, you know, it's a constant deadline. But even now, it's kind of weird because I have written so many essays, but there's so much writing on an essay, so much writing on every word. You know, it just needs to be so tight. And so I can get kind of anxious around writing an essay. And also if people miss the point, there was only one chance to make it. Right. With a book, you get to say so many more things so that I feel like my chances of communicating are better. And sometimes I just boggle at how the sheer length of time it takes to write a book and then realize that you wrote it wrong and then write it again. So speaking of your longer form work, your first novel, The Chicken Sisters, is coming out soon. And Julie and I have both read it and really enjoyed it. You had a base of experience and audience in nonfiction, you know, your parenting base, and this is a big switch. So how did you decide, you know, I think I'm going to write a novel. You know, I've spent my whole career doing nonfiction things. Time to make stuff up. I always meant to write novels. This is always what I was going to do when I grew up. Everything else was just me doing the easier thing. The thing where someone was more likely to sort of give you a gold star or give you a job. I didn't sort of take the leap into really throwing myself at fiction until I had securely sold the piece of nonfiction and the money was going to come in for that. Over the course of that year, I also thought this is my chance to make this jump. I think there's a shelf life to being a parenting writer, and depending on why you're doing it. If you're doing it because you're in education or you're really interested in early childhood, that's all one thing. But I tended to be more interested in the policy aspects. And while that's still going on, it becomes really frustrating because nothing changes. And then there's only so much of your own experience you can write about. So I suspected I probably needed to be done with that. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the the writing itself of fiction is different from the writing of nonfiction and sort of what you think the pros and cons of each are? Oh, it's definitely different. I really had to learn to write fiction. So I spent a year hacking my way through to the messiest draft. I mean, it was like an octopus with 46 arms. I managed to draft it and get it together, but it just didn't feel, you know, it was really hard to get it to come to an end. So while I was at that point, we, as a podcast, I'm the co-host of the Am Writing podcast, we interviewed Jenny Nash, who's the founder of Author Accelerator and who makes her living as a book coach. And I went into that conversation thinking, well, I would never hire someone to work with me on this because then it would not be my story. And I came out of it going, this is a really good idea. She could teach me a lot. So I ended up working with her and also sitting down with a lot of books on just how to structure a story and how to make it work. So are there skills, do you think, from nonfiction that have that really helped you maybe hone the fiction or otherwise? I think there's a couple. One is just sitting down. If you're going to sit down and get some words out, 
you're going to get somewhere. And I've been sitting down every day for a really, really, really long time. And also I've been writing when I didn't feel like I had anything to say for a really, really long time. That was the magic of that daily deadline job was who cares if you don't have anything to say, you will say something Mm -hmm. because otherwise there will be a hole and people will be angry and possibly fire you. There is no (laughs) greater threat than the fear that the New York Times will have a hole in it that is your fault. Um, I can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah. I think the other piece, and this is kind of funny, I've never thought about this before, but transitions are Mm. really important in every kind of writing. Like if you're writing an essay, typically you maybe need to go from the little moment when you're showing the vignette at the beginning that's going to take you into the deeper piece of meaning that's going to take you into the societal question that's probably going to take you back to the vignette and then out again with clothes. So you have to find all these different ways to move your story along. It's actually true in fiction too. You have to move from the people talking to the people doing something the next day to somebody else being in a restaurant and you need- It's so hard. I'm sorry. I just have to interrupt and say, like even just walking outside, you know, I don't know, like how do I get the characters from here to there without being incredibly boring? Yeah. Well, I always like Gretchen Rubin's advice, which is just don't write the boring parts. Oh, but that is so that is so easier said than done. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, it, it totally it totally is. But whenever I'm feeling bored, that re- that makes me go, oh, oh, this is probably this should be a transition. Well, speaking of transitions, and how's this one? Tell us about the genesis of Chicken Sisters. So, Chicken Sisters is the story of two small town sisters. One stays, one goes, and for the entire rest of their life, they are in a locked in a feud over who made the better life choices. So they turn, as one does, to reality television to resolve their ongoing differences. As one does. As one does, of course, because nothing solves your life problems, like being a guest on a reality TV show. Let that just be advice (laughs) that we just share for everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Chicken Sisters has lots of conflict and tension that keep the pages turning. Uh, Julie and I were both remarking on that. Oh, my God, what's going to happen next? At the same time, it has a wonderful feel-good quality to it, which I think is, that's a hard needle to thread. And we're curious, how did you achieve that balance? I set my people up so that they had to be stupid. (laughs) (laughs) That is really hard. You know, our protagonists are our people, and they are doing things that we are creating for them. So we want them to be smart, right? But they can't be smart because that would be really boring. I don't want to read a book about a smart person who goes through their life making all the right decisions. So I set them up so that they really had to do stupid things to each other. But at the same time, they sort of, they alternate doing it. And I think maybe when one of them does a really stupid, awful thing, invariably at that moment, the other one is the victim. So you know why the person did the really awful thing, but you also know how it felt to have the really awful thing done to you. Because you also, even though they're doing something that's admittedly stupid, you show an understandable and relatable thought process. You can be in that person's head and not and understand why they're doing this thing. Even as you say, don't do it, don't do yes. it. And if your readers aren't shouting, no, no, don't do that at your character at some point during the book, you probably haven't got enough tension. I think that KJ just hit on one of the reasons that writing novels is so hard for me, which is that I'm really risk averse and I love my 
characters. So if I'm supposed to be putting them in scenarios where everyone is saying, don't do that, don't do that, it is not going to be, it's just not easy for me to do that. It's hard even for me to imagine someone doing that. Yes, so I totally to get it. Yeah. I, I'm not that risk averse, but I'm very conflict averse. So yeah. also very hard for me to have characters being mean to each other, doing the wrong thing. God forbid they would actually have an argument. <laughs> just beyond. I, that might make it harder for you to be a writer, but gosh, it makes you a good partner in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So KJ and Trisha both felt that writing was their destiny. Do you feel like writing was your destiny? Well, I certainly did not. I mean, as a kid, I read all the time. And I thought that these books were the work of magicians. You know, I I never thought that I could do it. It was only when I was really in my 30s that I took the plunge and decided I could at least try it. And, you know, since then, I've learned that, of course, it's not magic. It's just desire and willingness to sit down and keep at it until it's right. Did you think it was your destiny? No, no, same thing. I read constantly. I even wrote some stories, but my destiny was to be an opera singer. And then I discovered Mm. after doing that, that that wasn't my destiny. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting how life works that way. But what I do think is my destiny is having some form of artistic expression. So whether it's music or whether it's words, that is essential for me. Yeah. I I need to ask you, so when you were a little girl, you saw yourself growing up to be an opera singer? No. When I was a little girl, I saw myself growing up and thinking I was going to be a musical theater performer. And then here's my opera origin story. When I was in ninth grade, my choir teacher gave me a piece of music to learn. It was the letter duet in Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. And I thought it was the hardest, most beautiful thing I had ever done and listened to. And I fell in love. And it was from that moment that I wanted to be an opera singer. Oh, that's beautiful. When I was a theater kid in in high school, my music teacher asked me, could I not hear that the notes were wrong? (laughs) (laughs) So sorry. I was about to say, I had no idea you were a theater kid. And and now now I know why. (laughs) Oh, that's terrible. That's really terrible. Because like books, I believe that music is for everyone. And who cares if you can't carry a tune? Singing is one of the best things. Filling up your whole body with music is one of the best things a person can do. Well, and that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Nice transition. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Do you want to take it from here? Sure. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Trisha at www.trishaelamwalker.com and KJ at kjdelantonia.com. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.